all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Ghost Will, and today I'm going to be talking to labor organizer Miranda Cristofani. She's part of an initiative called Real Equity, and that's R-E-E-L, you know, like a reel of film, that seeks to bring an end to the gender pay disparity for below-the-line workers. Now, before we get into that, there's something really, really important that I want to talk about that's been happening here in L.A. and that is not getting nearly enough attention. Black Lives Matter Los Angeles is an incredibly active and dedicated organization in our city. They have spent years raising awareness of police violence and the lack of consequences for officers. Often, and usually completely unprompted, I will inform people that no officer in the county of Los Angeles has been prosecuted for the on-duty use of deadly force since 2001. Over 400 people have been killed by sheriff's deputies and LAPD officers in that time. Nearly 1,000 people have been shot by officers. In the view of the police commission, which is a civilian body meant to oversee the cops, and District Attorney Jackie Lacey, every shooting, every death was within policy. Even when LAPD Chief Charlie Beck recommended an officer be prosecuted for shooting Brendan Glenn to death on the Venice boardwalk, Jackie Lacey would not compel her prosecutors to press charges. Honestly, one has to wonder what exactly a cop does have to do in order to get in trouble in this town. And I'm not the only one. For the last 46 weeks, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles and its coalition partners have gathered at the Hall of Justice in downtown LA to hold a vigil for victims of police violence. Weekly, we are joined by the families of victims who share their stories and their pain. It is a hard thing to attend. It is emotionally draining, and lately it has become more contentious. Let me give you a sense of what these vigils are like. So I take the expo line from where I live on the west side. I arrive at the Grand Park Metro Station and ascend to the large green open space that follows this hill down to the steps of City Hall. I walk north past the Hall of Records and turn right onto Temple. As I walk down Temple, I see a utility box painted like a sheriff's prison bus, and I always wonder, why? Why would you paint a utility box in the style of a prisoner transport? What message are you sending? That our carceral state and the deadly prisons that make it up are just part of the local flavor? I shake my head and continue down Temple. I pass the first doors out of the Hall of Justice. They're barricaded. Now, on most business days, these doors are accessible. But every Wednesday, the building locks itself down, lest the families of police victims be able to talk to their elected district attorney, a woman who technically works for them. As I round the corner onto Spring, I see the other barricades on the promenade. When this vigil started, the barricades were far back, close to the doors, and we could take up about two-thirds of the space with our community circle. But over the last few months, those barricades have moved further and further out, pushing us nearly to the steps. We gather, we form a circle, and we begin. As we talk and listen and chant, employees leave the office for the day. Most of them ignore us. Some of them look uncomfortable and move quickly. Others gawk and take videos, often laughing at us with the deputies assigned to intimidate us. For two hours each week, we hold this space. We open with a prayer and a recitation of names of those murdered by our police. We listen to testimony from families, we discuss community events, and then we close with a prayer from Asada Sakur. It has been 46 weeks, nearly a year, and we know that we have been getting through to them. Of course, they are not changing policy or charging officers with crimes, no. We know that we are being heard because as time goes on, they act more and more and more afraid. They push us farther away, as though that will break our morale. This week was especially tense. We did not appreciate being locked out of the space that belongs to the public, and we do not appreciate the barriers that say authorized personnel only, as though the public is not authorized to use the spaces and buildings that we own. Jackie Lacey does not pay the lease on her office. We do. So last week, we helped the officers move their barriers back to a little less extreme distance. They did not like this. 
a couple dozen unarmed protesters, men, women, children, were confronted by nearly 10 armed deputies. Several of them kept their hands on their guns the whole time, as though they needed to employ deadly force against us. We have hands to clap, voices to chant, and eyes to see, but the state meets us with guns and batons. We come in peace, they come in aggression, and it appears that this is escalating. And there is a very simple explanation for this escalation. On August 15, 2018, a very contentious police commission meeting was held to discuss another violent incident involving LAPD. The board was apparently not in the mood to be reminded that the community wants them to hold officers accountable for their actions. The meeting was halted several times and three people were arrested. There were two very notable names among those arrested, Professor Molina Abdullah and Sheila Hines Brim. Molina is a professor and chair of Pan-African Studies at Cal State LA and one of the founders of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Sheila is the aunt of Wakisha Wilson, a victim of police violence here in LA. To give some background, Wakisha Wilson was arrested after an altercation with another patient in a local hospital. During her detention, she died. The details are not entirely clear. LAPD and the coroner maintain that she committed suicide with a phone cord that's in the detention area. But there are issues with this story. Firstly, the telephone cord on that phone is only nine inches long, not nearly long enough to wrap around your neck. You would have to hold it there to cut off the air to your brain, and not something that you would be able to do before passing out and no longer choking yourself. There are 20 minutes of surveillance tape missing from that night, and Wakisha Wilson's body apparently moved 25 feet at some point after she died. LAPD and the coroner have not addressed these disparities, and they refuse to tell us what actually happened or to release all of the footage. Footage that, again, we own because we pay for those jails with our taxes. Despite the findings of LAPD and the coroner, very few in the community believe them, and Sheila Hines Brim has been dedicated in her advocacy to bring this injustice to light. Dr. Abdullah and Mrs. Hines Brim's vocal condemnation of our deadly police has brought them to the attention of those in power who believe they should be allowed to serve without any scrutiny. All this came to a head on August 15 with their arrests. Both were given an arraignment date of August 31st. So on that day, more than 70 people packed a courtroom to overflowing to show support. Dr. Abdullah was expecting to be charged with one count relating to the August 15th meeting. Instead, she is now facing seven counts dating as far back as July 2017, and all related to her attendance at police commission meetings. This is a clear case of intimidation from Jackie Lacey and the powerful police interests that infect our city hall. Despite being unable to find any reason to prosecute police officers for murder, Jackie Lacey is using department resources and public money to throw the book at a college professor and a woman who have the audacity to demand that our DA do her damn job and protect all Angelinos, not just those with a gun and a badge. As of now, these cases are working their way through the courts, but there is no indication that the DA will be backing down, and if they won't back down, neither will we. Every Wednesday at 211 West Temple, we will gather to demand an end to police violence, to mass incarceration, to a racist criminal legal system. Every Wednesday, we will show up to be confronted by armed deputies and cowardly city employees. We will not be deterred. If you have not had the chance to attend one of these vigils, now is the time to do that. Grab your friends, your family, and bring them. Join in our circle with an open heart and join us as we seek justice in an in and join us as we seek justice in an unjust city it is our duty to fight for freedom it is our duty to win we must love and protect one another
We have nothing to lose but our chains. I'll keep you updated as things progress, and I hope to see you out there. Our circle will grow large enough to surround the Hall of Justice. Our voices will be loud enough to reach even the highest offices. Our conviction will never waver. Thank you very much for listening. Now on to my interview with Miranda. Today we're talking pay equity in the entertainment industry. So joining me today is organizer Miranda Cristofani. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks. So uh, real equity. Uh, that's a pretty interesting initiative coming out of the local 800 uh, that you're a part of, right? 871. 871. Yeah. Sorry, there's so many union numbers <laughs> <I> in this <laughs> town. <laughs> I know. And I'm actually part of two of them. So so tell me about 871. Uh, 871 is uh, local 871. Under their jurisdiction, they have a, a multiple multitude of crafts. Uh, they have script supervisors, production coordinators, assistant production coordinators, production accountants, assistant production accountants, art department coordinators, which is what I was for 14 years. Um, uh, as well as uh, stage managers and teleprompters, and they have a category that's um, uh, tape and phone uh, ads as well. I think that's very, very limited, mostly for sports. But they have a lot of their, you know, allied production. Uh, professionals basically is what they cover so a lot of different crafts that have different needs but one union that's trying to protect them as as below the line laborers which for folks who don't know about entertain entertainment industry jargon below the line is basically folks who aren't getting credits folks who uh, are doing the actual work and aren't seen as like creators i guess it is i forget exactly what the distinction is but like an editor will be below the line a producer is above the line for folks who know so what are the challenges that below the line workers face most of the time i think for for the crafts in 871, we are very much the, you know, the production aspect of things that make, that hold the production together. You know, art department coordinators, they hold the art department together. They're the people that really aren't seen, but make the whole machine move. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got your DPs. I mean, even DPs, anybody that's at the head of their department, technically they're below the line but they're still at the head of their department mm-hmm. so they they're usually getting pretty good salaries so they're, they're the head of their department they they run things they're the ones that are very visual mm-hmm. like they you get to see them you know what the dp does you know what the production designer does you don't always get to see what the production coordinated coordinators doing behind the scenes to really make everything run smoothly to make sure the budget's on track to make sure everyone's doing their job the way they're supposed to be doing it and really making the production go. So, um, you know, above the line are people like directors, producers, um, technically on the budget, the above the line people. Um, But I think really the sort of more homegrown definition of below the line is the people that aren't so visual, like the actresses. You know, like that's why we're really stressing that this is the working crafts that are actually making the production go. Mm-hmm. And it's something that uh, I've noticed a bunch working in the entertainment industry that when you have this sort of distinction between like a department and the people that are actually in it, you often see people at the head are rewarded. They're up for uh, awards. You know, when there's like an editor on a film, he's actually overseeing a group of like 12 editors, but he's getting the credit. And you, you sort of see this a bunch of people working towards one other person's kind of vision or, or you know, career in some sense. Uh, but real equity, how does that tie in with uh, kind of the worker protections and stuff that the union's been doing before? And if you can give us a little background on where the real equity uh, push came from. Um, certainly. Um, so, you know, there are over, we, it, locally it's one represents over 2,500 crafts. Um, actually, I did, I, I, 
I noticed I didn't mention our newest um, addition to our family, our writer's assistants and script coordinators as well. Mm. We just recently organized them. Leslie Simon, who's our uh, business rep, recently organized and pulled in about 400 to 500 new members, which is a big, you know, which is a big victory. Um, and, you know, since Leslie's been our business rep, um, you know, there's been a lot of forward movement uh, with regards to, you know, these below the line scale pay and um, moving forward and led us to real equity. Mm-hmm. And we started, it actually all started, I believe, when the law came into effect, the Fair Pay Act. Mm-hmm. The Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. Uh, there was a, an, an addition in California that was passed, I believe, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually started our uh, pay equity study. We started a study at Local 871 to start to really look at these crafts and to distinguish whether some of these crafts had substantially similar positions mm. that we could compare them to that were predominantly male positions. Mm. Because we are a fem- predominantly and historically female craft local, basically. Mm. 90% of our script supervisors are female. 80% of our production uh, of our ADCs are female mm-hmm. and I think about 70% of our production coordinators and assistant production coordinators are female. Mm-hmm. So that's where this started. And so talking about this today, because it's something that we see not just in the entertainment industry, but perhaps more pronounced there. We've seen lots of stories about female actors and male actors earning wildly different uh, pay grades and pay rates and wildly different residual rates. And so that also continues below the line. There's still gender wage discrimination there. Yeah. And and I, I think it's great. I'm really glad that the Me Too and the, you know, the Time's Up movement have brought this out because I think we need a lot of highlight on this. I'm really glad it started with the uh, with the female actors, and I and and there's definitely a discrepancy there. And 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 those are the mo- vi- most visual people. So I'm really glad that they're stepping up and saying something. But this gender bias and stereotyping is endemic in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and it's been the case for you know over 70 years now. Mm-hmm. We're we're talking about an old Hollywood biased ideal of you know gender segregation, job segregation, stereotyping that still hasn't been addressed Mm -hmm. and really is evident in people's scale rates. And it's really time that Hollywood steps up and is responsible and does something about it. And we're pushing them to do that with this, with real equity. So the Local 871 did a study on the kind of uh, pay disparities that we're seeing. Um, Can you give us some of the the facts and statistics on that? Yeah, absolutely. The study um, actually determined that there were some crafts that were similar or substantially similar to the crafts at 871. Uh, We found that production coordinators uh, were were comparing them to key second ADs. Um, and overall, the basic minimum wa- weekly wage for a production coordinator is around $2,119. Um, I think they found that the key second AD's weekly rate is about $3,298, a difference of 1170 something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in television, it's a bit more, and in features, it's a little less. And and we did find, you know, same with the uh, art department coordinators, they're substantially similar craft uh, that they got compared to with the key assistant location managers. Um, art department coordinators on television make around $1,015 a week. 
Um, key assistant location managers, on the other hand, make around seventeen, eighteen, eighteen hundred a week. So that's a difference of seven, eight hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then script supervisors, they were difficult in that um, they are the head of their department. Their job is, you know, is it's it's not an easy one to find a substantially similar position to because it's it's a very different set of skills. Uh, there's not a lot of people that sit with the script next to the director the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the the study is loosely comparing them to first ADs. Um, and they make, uh, in TV, they make 2,500 a week. ADs make almost five grand a week, about 4,900, a difference of $2,400. So wow. you can That's see substantial. it's a substantial uh, disparity. Yeah. And when it came to comparing the different crafts, um, it seems like those sort of fall along gender lines. Is there a reason for that where, like, key location people tend to be male while art department coordinators and the like tend to be female? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going back again to the old, the, the, the job stereotyping where, you know, script supervisors used to be considered scripties or script girls. So I love the visual that Wes Anderson gives in The Life Aquatic of the script girl who's basically got nothing, is bare-breasted, right? So that's the old ideal of the script girls. And we're working with, you know, that, um, you know, art department coordinators used to be considered glorified secretaries. You know, they come from like desk jobs and they're pushing papers and that's where the history is. So they've been, you know, predominantly female. That's where the job, the job segregation has come from. And when you're comparing different payment rates, what are the explanations that you hear back as to why there are different rates between these departments or these different jobs? Um, I think the history is different for different crafts. Um, You know, the art department coordinators, um, I believe, you know, they didn't even ha- they negotiations has fluctuated in how their scale rates been treated. Mm-hmm. So we we know that these have been historically female and predominantly female crafts, and they they've really been treated as such. Um, and in the last round of negotiations, they actually decided to. Um, to give our departments a scale rate because some of them were actually making less than $800 a week. Oh, wow. Now, unfortunately, because negotiations are tough and the AMPTP are as strong as that they are, the scale rate that they raised it to was peanuts, mm-hmm. you know. So what it actually did for some people is it raised their scale rates. For others, it brought them down because now they had a scale that the producers could say, well, this is what your scale is. That's what you're getting paid. And the, the AMPTP uh, is the uh, uh, Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so different crafts have had different history with it. You know, script supervisors, they've had a scale rate for a while, but they've always been slightly below the, you know, the predominantly male um heads of departments. I mean, that's what they are. They're ahead of their own department. Yeah. So while there are unique pressures with being in the entertainment industry, we see a lot of the same lines that we see in regular business where women are generally paid less than their male counterparts, even if they're doing similar work. Were there any other surprising uh, findings that came out of this study? Um, Well, the the study did touch on sexual harassment. I mean, the the majority of the women that were interviewed also, uh, you know, also stated that they had experienced sexual harassment, and this was before the Me Too movement. Mm. We actually did the study before all of that came out, so that's kind of surprising. I think it was around 70% of the women that were interviewed experienced sexual harassment in addition to 
um, you know, feeling undervalued and underpaid. Mm -hmm. And what have you all been doing to push this initiative? Um, Other than just doing studies and talking to people within the industry, how have you been spreading the word? Um, Well, we have set up our Real Equity Committee, which is chaired by uh, fellow art department coordinator Marissa Shipley, and she's doing an awesome job. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, Leslie Simon's been very, very active and vocal at our local about pushing our pay equity campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, We have... uh, We've done numerous articles. We were in the LA Times a couple of months ago, I think back in June, um, where our president, Dawn Gilliam, did an interview about script supervisors and and touched on how it affects them. Um, So we've done multiple articles now with Deadline and LA Times again, really talking about, um, oh, most importantly, we have an open letter to the industry, um, which is what Real Equity is really pushing out there to get support on. Um, and we have people like Ava DuVernay, uh, Wanda Sykes, Mandy Moore, um, Don Cheadle and Alfred Molina, Martin Sheen, Jane Fonda. Uh, all these people are coming out to support. They've signed the letter. And what we're asking is that people that are in positions of power that have small production companies, that they start to adapt um, what we have put forward as an equity toolkit, mm. which actually shows the percentages of what these crafts should be making and that they raise their scale rates to those because they know it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So we're doing it on a sort of on a media campaign level, on a level where we're ga- garnering support from, you know, the, the industry at large. We're asking the industry to take this on. Um, but we're also asking that some real actionable qualitative change happen with these within these small production companies. And when it comes to uh, getting support from like bigger name or higher profile people, are you finding that to be a struggle or are most people when presented with this like kind of on board with it? I think the people that are that are uh, active and activists are ready for it. I think that we've seen a lot of support from a lot of women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that some of the bigger production companies that are part of the AMPTP that they might not be so forthcoming because of the sort of quote-unquote conflict of interest with, you know, with what we're trying to do and how the AMPTP feels about it. Mm-hmm. So those are the people that we're, uh, we would be thrilled if they would sign on, but we're starting at the grassroots level to begin with. And you mentioned the, the AMPTP, and we also have, like, the Directors Guild of America, and some of the very powerful creative guilds here in the city are heavily, heavily male. And do you think that influences a little bit how you all are, are taken as far as credibility goes or how much harder you have to fight because I know women who have wanted to get into the DGA for their entire career and it's like 95% male like the numbers are kind of insane they are insane and they you know it's time to change that there I mean across the board they're insane (laughs) I think I mean as a production designer I you know I I sit in my local and and you know I I see a lot of men Mm -hmm. you know that's what I see it's visual to me and it's changing. It's not that it's not changing, but uh, you know, I think that we have definitely appealed. I mean, actually, the DGA, even some women in the PGA, mm-hmm. have been supportive. And I think it's it's that there is this movement, and like I said, so not surprisingly, but amongst other women that know that this is the right thing to do. We have to start somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. It, the WGA has also been very supportive. We actually ha- had. Um, Women in film have signed on, in addition to women in media. And 
And we're actually about to hold a summit too, which I'd oh, like okay. to talk about too, if yeah, you can. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, we're, we're co-hosted by uh, Women in Media, um, our local 871, local 839, the Animation Guild, um, and local 892, the Costume Designers Guild, which are also dealing with a bunch of their own equity issues as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have a panel of women that are all gonna talk about their crafts and how this affects them. Now, I just have to stress that we have done a study and we're a little bit ahead of the curve with regards to our campaign. Locana, the, the color stylists at the local animation guild and the set decorators and the uh, costume designers, I think they're on the brink of doing their own study, mm-hmm. but they're not quite as far along as we are as far as looking at substantially similar crafts. Okay. Um, but we will be yeah, holding the summit at summit uh, September 29th at the Animation Guild. And it's open to everyone. If everyone wants to go to the Women in Media website and um, check out the summit and come, we'd love to have everybody. Yeah, and we'll definitely have the link down in the description. Uh, to, to turn back to the lack of pay equity, as it were, what are some of the negative effects that we see under the current regime? Like, what are the pressures that women who are being underpaid in the industry are feeling? And do you think it has a negative impact on their career, their willingness? to pursue this career absolutely i mean i think you know we see some production coordinators that are now in their you know 50s and 60s that have been underpaid for their whole life um and you know it's something that it it, it's it's not only devaluing but it's demoralizing Mm -hmm. um and i think that there you know there are there are professionals out there. This is a really highly skilled, um, highly responsible job. It's not just an entry-level position. I mean, people who don't understand the position or haven't done it themselves really don't know what it takes to do it. And it's hard work. They're the first people in and the last people out, you know, um, including our department coordinators and script supervisors, I mean, across the board. Um, and I think that for me, to be honest with you, I, I enjoyed being an art department coordinator, but... I was seeing, you know, the percentage of money that was going into my pension. And long term, I'm like, I can't withstand, you know, I can't, I can't withstay in this position if I'm going to, you know, I'm a single working mom, take care of my family or have, you know, anything to, to, you know, retire on if, I, if that's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I actually know friends that have moved out of, out of the craft because they couldn't make ends meet and it wasn't a workable wage. And these are women that have done this craft for over 10, 12 years that are actually very, very good at their job. Um, So, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a problem that doesn't need to be there, but people are suffering because of it. Mm -hmm. And what would you like to see change other than just the pay equity? What other sort of structural changes do you think we need to be seeing in kind of the production world to make sure this doesn't keep happening? Um, well, I think a big part of also what we're trying to do is educate people on actually what the position does and how important it is. Um, because like I said, I really, I'm a true believer that unless you get in there and do the work yourself, you really don't know what it takes, you know. Um, and so we're trying to educate people on how much the, the work, first of all, the workload that these people take on or that this craft takes on. Um, and really gain some respect for the craft as well as up the scale rate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the directors and producers know because they, at the end of the day, they know who's running their budgets for them. And mm-hmm. unfortunately in this industry, a lot of this comes down to money, mm-hmm. right? And how we save money and how we run our 
productions tightly and on budget and on time and these people are a big big part of that and so they know how important they are but we're trying to educate the masses here in LA you know there's always with the job postings you see like union versus non-union but there's a lot of non-union work here what do you hope this initiative can do to people who aren't protected by a union that's a good question um, because our union has been really a full tour de force in this whole movement. And we are really working within the um, the realm of union rules and boundaries here, which, you know, there has been a lot of non-union work. I, what I would say to that is that those union non-union workers <laughs> need to unionize and come together and, you know, join the union. And... Um, that's just my personal, you know, that would be my personal advice to them because I don't know how they would be protected. I know that non-union work, uh, they get away with some horrendous hours, some horrendous rates, and people will do the work because they want to get into the industry. And I understand that. But quite often safety and, you know, quality of life is really, um, you know, uh, what's the, the word, is really... Um, it's sacrificed because of it, and I, I'm not a I'm not a supporter of, of non-union work. I'm I really believe in, uh, you know, organizing your people and getting them the best thing that they they uh, could possibly get for their craft. And I also think that it ups the scale of the work too. You know, I'm a really strong believer in that union work is quality work, mm-hmm. and it and it helps us keep things to a certain level and quality that is, you know, is union. And it's one of the unfortunate realities, I think, here in L.A., that when unions uh, succeed in protecting their members, and this isn't to say anything bad about unions, but people who are non-union generally suffer, not because of the union's malfeasance, but because producers and directors and people who are running budgets want to save money in any way that they can, are willing to push the envelope to see who's willing to accept those jobs. Uh, What kind of solidarity... uh, can you do for those folks? Like, what kind of initiatives do you think are going to get people into unions? Well, I think that something that I, I that I'm seeing unions are working on is diversifying and inclusion. Right, mm. so um, they know that there's an issue, and and there are diversity committees, there's inclusion committees, there's you know we have our equity committee. Um, I think that we need to without without lowering the level of quality we need to somehow make it more accessible for people to join mm-hmm. um, and I think in our current climate and the way that unions are being threatened that I think that if there was an organizing force and if if people came together and organized it that they would be more than welcomed into the union mm-hmm. you know if there was a if there was a production where there were blatant um, you know, uh, safety issues happening or if there were things that they were uncomfortable about or they felt like they were being taken advantage of they could start a, you, they could they could start organizing amongst themselves and I think that if they had enough people that they would be welcomed in you know I can't speak for all other unions but I think that um, you know we are making an active effort to flip productions and flip I know a lot of commercials have flipped and mm-hmm. and when people call in our business reps are out there straight away checking them out mm-hmm. so you know they can call into the union if they feel like they they want to flip the show um, and I highly suggest they do especially if they feel like they're being taken advantage of and uh, since today we're recording this on Labor Day, what are the advantages that like you've seen in your own career from being union? What are the play, what are the times that you felt protected by that that um, solidarity with other workers? Well, 
to be honest with you, it it's it's been very apparent to me. I started as a PA many, many years ago, and I went from, you know, a 24-hour day to a 21-hour day to an 18-hour day, all in a row, living out of my car, um, you know, just happy to be working, yeah. you know, for $100 a day. And, you know, that was a long time ago, granted, but it wasn't safe. I couldn't drive home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wasn't earning anything into my health and pension. I happen to have uh, an autoimmune disease. My son has asthma. Um, you know, the, these things have been covered under my good health insurance. And I feel like, you know, I think that the quality and the level that happens on union shows with the experience that we have and, and being union and people knowing what their job entails and being an expert at it. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in the non-union world, but you know, we are categorized into our positions for a reason because we do them really well and we know what our limitations are. Safety, right? So I feel, you know, as a woman pr- protected in those areas, like I don't feel like there's going to be as much, you know, you know, I work around big sets, you know, mm-hmm. and I work with construction companies that know what they're doing mm-hmm. and have highly skilled, you know, carpenters. And so, you know, I feel like it's safer not only from a physical level, but also from, you know, a health level. Also to know that I've got some money coming into my pension, um, you know, and it's a pension. It's not a 401k. It's an actual pension. So for a lot of different reasons, yeah. you know, I, I feel protected and I'm actually very proud of a union. Well, and it's one thing I think that Hollywood uh, had a huge history of very unsafe and deadly working conditions. And it seemed like we went through a large period of time where we didn't see that as much. And then the very sudden and tragic death of Sarah Jones out on the Midnight Rider set in uh, Georgia brought that all kind of home again. And we're seeing a, a bit of a push here where L.A. is attempting to bring more production here. And it seems to provide like some protections. But what's your advice to folks who are out there working on sets now and what what you would suggest to somebody who's union or non-union um, who does feel unsafe or feel that they're being exploited? Um, my suggestion is you, you always don't be afraid to use your voice. Mm-hmm. You can always report it to somebody or someone, even if it's like a fellow coworker. talk about it. Ask yourselves, is this really safe? Is this really something I want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, there are a lot of people, especially actually in the art department coordinator world, where, you know, we're on a 12 hour and a lot of people get asked to stay longer than their 12 hours, but aren't getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. So when I was an art department coordinator, I'd be like, you know what, I'm at my 12 hours, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to stick up for yourself and know, you know, what your what what your scale rate entails and what your hour minimum is or what your hour maximum is. Yeah. And, you know, and stick up for yourself, yeah. you know, because no one else is going to stick up for you. You got to use your voice and you got to um, stick up for yourself and, and, and be vocal. Yeah. It's one of those uh, if you give a mouse a cookie scenarios almost where, you know, if you give a producer an inch, they're going to try and take a mile. So as we as we're rounding out towards the end, um, any last thoughts that you had on real equity on these initiatives, any way that people can get directly involved with this? Um, Absolutely. So I really urge everybody that's listening to go to the real equity site. They can read the study. Um, there's a lot of amazing information on there, and I, I urge people to sign the open letter to the entertainment industry, um, and you can find that at uh, bit.ly backslash real equity, and it's R-E-E-L equity. 
Um, also, the, on that site, you'll see uh, the the Pay Equity Summit that we're having in September. Please come to the summit. Um, I think it's only 10 bucks. It includes lunch and a cocktail mixer at the end. And there's going to be some amazing women and men, all genders, uh, union, non-union, whatever you are, come and talk to us. Come and hear the conversation at the table. Um, and, you know, there'll be some great people to connect and mix with as well. And lastly, if there's any executive producers out there or anybody that owns a production company please get in touch with real equity you can also email us at realequity at gmail.com and let us know uh, if you're interested in reading about our equity toolkit we'll be happy to send it out to you and and arrange a meeting yeah and the entertainment industry is is fascinating to me because you know, job to job, week to week, I'm almost never on set with the same people, but we're all pulling in the same direction. We're all at the same level. And there's this weird feeling that we're all in it for ourselves, but we're all actually pulling together. Um, And you don't need to sacrifice yourself for somebody else's creative vision. I feel like that gets lost here a lot and people get preyed upon. They're like, I want to work in film. Oh, well, I have to make all these sacrifices and do these things. It's like, no, you, you don't. There's a nice balance to be had there. Like Sony may not make as much money, but you'll be safe and have a steady job. Right. Yeah. And I and and I think actually that's something I left out as being part of a union too. actually, even though, you know, there are some divides and there is some interfighting, not a lot. But um, but I do feel like we are kind of kind of like a huge family. We do look out for each other. And I think that there's a lot of comfort in that. And um, I know that, you know, we have a lot of support from the rest of our brothers and sisters. And it's really, you know, men and women alike. And it's really nice to see that support that this is an issue that's been going on for so long. And everybody knows that something needs to be done. That's a really, really good point. It is it's something here in Hollywood that we kind of accept these ways of working that are incredibly unfair um, because we feel like there's a lot of power the other way. I want to say thank you very much for joining us and talking about this and educating our audience on this very necessary push to get like actual equity going in not just the entertainment industry, but hopefully pushed out to other sectors yeah, of the economy. Yeah, and as we know, a lot of things start in the entertainment industry and get you know echoed out in the yeah. rest of the environment or world, hopefully. And I'm really hoping that this is like a real flag for everybody else to follow. Yeah, I like that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. 